First Kings chapter 8, this I think is the most difficult chapter to teach through in the Kings. Uh, before I came out, I prayed for you all, your attention span. Then it was Chris's turn to pray, and he prayed I wouldn't be boring. No, he didn't. He did not, but I could tell by the laugh he wished he did. The dedication of the temple is what we're discussing, and again, just talking with Chris about this, you know, in studying the life of Saul, he was a wicked man, and, and there was just so much there to open up and apply to life. And then, of course, David, thrilling, exciting, godly, exhilarating, and then Solomon. Uh, his writings are very good, but to me, his life is is just disappointing. It's kind of dull compared to David, and <clears throat> that makes it uh, a challenge. This dedication of the temple, I'm reminded of Exodus 25, verse 8. God said to Moses, to the people, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And that is what is happening, of course, in this eighth chapter. The, the temple is built, it is furnished, and now it is being dedicated, open for service, that is. Uh, how much of the Christian life will you have to fight for between here and eternity? And it's all of it, every step of the way. And thank God that we have this scripture to help us stay on track and bring us back to where we need to be. I have noticed when I'm not in my own devotion time as much as, well, if I drift out of my devotion time, I feel it right away. It's not like, oh, a month later or a week later or two days. It's, it's that day. And uh, this dedication of the life to God, of course, is more important than the dedication of the building. Uh, he is our sanctuary. And now looking at verse 22, Then Solomon stood before the altar of Yahweh in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And he said, verse 23, Yahweh, God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants, who walk before you with all their hearts. Now, of course, he's saying there's no God in heaven like you. He's not suggesting there are other gods. He is saying it's an absolute statement. And, you know, God, who is like God? No one, which is what the name Michael means. It is a, it is a statement. It is a bodacious statement. Nobody's like God. So Solomon here, uh, dedicating the temple, you can, the parallel verses in Second Chronicles 6 and 7, and the main thrust of his prayers is that God would hear the people when they faced this temple, when they recognized that uh, this was not an accident, the building of this temple, nor the selection of its uh, position, that this was all done by God through his prophets and through his servants, such as David, and the people are going to sin, and God is going to forgive if they repent. Much of what he is saying is based on Deuteronomy, which tells us Solomon knew the word. The kings were supposed to write for themselves a copy of the law, which would have just really been the first five books of Moses. Uh, after, with these themes from Deuteronomy, announcing the consequences of disobedience and the rewards of justice. Uh, 
he is uh, going to have this gigantic feast for the nation. This is a national event. It's not, you know, just those around Jerusalem who are willing to come. This is, this is huge. And he's going to offer up 142,000 sacrifices over a 14-day period. Uh, we'll come to that. It says here in verse 22 that he spread out his hand toward heaven. This is a practice that is mentioned in the New Testament church. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I desire, therefore, that... The men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and doubting. Look at that, without wrath. Uh, I'm, I'm walking home tonight. I mean, keep me from having any wrath. Uh, without doubting. And it takes away the fatalism. Jesus said men ought always pray and not lose heart. Well, that's a big statement. Well... Speaking of heaven as he does here, spread out his hands towards heaven. The word heaven is found 12 times between verses 22 and 54. And what Solomon is doing is he's making it clear that we pray to the God in heaven where his throne is. Earth is his footstool. Verse 24, you have kept what you promised your servant David, my father. You have both spoken with your mouth and fulfilled it with your hand, as it is this day. Verse 25, therefore, Yahweh, God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your sons take heed to their way that they walk before me <clears throat> as you have walked before me. And God puts in a clause in the agreement, uh, wisely, of course. Well, the promise to David, Second Samuel 7, we should be familiar with that. Ultimately, this is fulfilled, this Davidic dynasty, uh, this link to David and this ongoing, this eternal throne is, of course, fulfilled in Christ. And it's, it's, it's remarkable and, and thrilling to get to the New Testament and read about David. For example, in Romans, Paul opens up that masterpiece, and he says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And so Paul ties, of course, keeps it tied in to the, the prophetic word of God. Uh, if your sons take heed to their way, yes, if they take heed, then this, 1 Kings 11, verse 4, for it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to Yahweh his God as was the heart of his father David. And it is that thing that makes reading to me the life of Solomon in the, in the biographical form, not again his writings. That's what makes him a dull boy to me. It, you know, and, and it's, you're looking for him to be like David, to con, con, to carry on this this uh, hope and this love and this zeal for the king of kings, and it, it flops. However, we can never, I believe, very strongly ever savagely judge Solomon. We we go but so far, and we back up. That's it. We we go no further. We see what he did. It's recorded for us. We learn from it, 
and we move forward. Verse 26, And now I pray, Solomon's still speaking, O God of Israel, let your word come true, which you have spoken to your servant, David, my father. But, verse 27 now, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. Well, we've covered this. He was very sober-minded about the whole thing. He knew this was an emblem for worship, the point of contact for the people, uh, a visible God with a visible temple. When he wrote to Hiram to furnish the temple, he made this very clear in his witness to a Gentile. Who then, he, he writes in Second Chronicles chapter 6, writing a letter to, to Hiram, Who am I then that I should build him a temple except to burn sacrifice before him? So he was very clear that this was for the ritual, which was connected to, of course, their service, their relationship with God, but God was much, much more than, than anything we could ever even imagine. Verse 28, Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Yahweh my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today. Verse 29, that your eyes may be open toward this temple night and day toward the place of which you said my name shall be there, that you may hear and the prayer which your servant makes toward this place. Well, we're in verse 28 where he says, uh, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying. How many of us have felt that way? I need you to answer now, Lord. Uh, this is... Uh, this doesn't have an eternal <laughs> I'm not waiting for forever to get this one done. And yet in the end, we're just submitted to what God does and work with what he, what he allows or disallows. So we can certainly identify with that in the prayer. Listen to the cry. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a fact. Leviticus 26, verse 11. God speaking, I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you, and be your God, and you shall be my people. Well, Sunday I asked the question, why should God do anything for you, or me, or anybody? Well, because of who he is. However, it goes more, and I'll hopefully get to this again on Sunday. It's not just because God is love, and loves the sinner, and sees a solution. Well, that is the purpose. That's it. There's purpose to his love. It's not this just, oh, I just, it's not just an affection, an emotion. There's a, a, a real purpose behind God. He sees the solution implemented. And that's why he says, I will walk among you and be your God. Emmanuel, you could say in a single word, and you shall be my people. Well, that wouldn't apply to all the Jews. It didn't apply to Judas Iscariot, for example. It won't apply to Ahab. Uh, and others, but it will apply to those who repent. Manasseh, I mean, one of the most foul of the kings, and yet in, he, he repents uh, deep into his, his reign. Uh, verse 30, and may, your, and may you hear the supplication of your servant and of your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place, here in heaven, your dwelling place, And when you hear, forgive. Well, this is putting a lot of weight on the the temple. And the fact that God is going to 
seal this prayer with lightning uh, really makes it, uh, gives it strength, uh, authority, and anoints the prayer. So it's not like God is listening to Solomon and saying, boy, you know, you're just asking too much. It is God is listening and saying, I approve of this. Psalm 5, David wrote, But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. In fear of you, I will worship toward your holy temple. So David, you know, there he is again, stirring up the future. He's writing these psalms, and the next thing you know, it's like into their law, into the fabric of who they are as the people of God, all the way into the New Testament church. God's house is meant to be something to believers. God's house is meant to mean something to believers. And it is uh, unfortunate that um, uh, I, for my, after 30 years, I still have hope, but it's, it's a struggle to, over the years, to see how many people are willing to just advocate against the house of God over petty things. Jonah, he lives this out, does he not? Where it says, and when they pray toward this place. Well, Jonah was sinning. He was running from God. He was called to be a prophet. And he didn't like his assignment. So he tried to escape. And God put a little pressure on him. Uh, something very fishy about how God did it. Jonah 2, here, here he is in the belly of the beast. And uh, when he survived, he says, I'm going to tell everybody just how foolish I was and how gracious God is. It just lends to all of what God is saying. And they speak to me. I will listen to them and I will forgive them. Then I said, writes Jonah, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Because he knew the scripture. You know, this was scripture, by the way. Jonah comes later, long after Solomon. And then, of course, Daniel opening the windows, facing Jerusalem where the temple was, and making his prayer, as was his routine. Routine is good. Uh, our uh, life-supporting organs that we have, the lung, the heart, they, they, they're routine. While we're sleeping, they're still working, or else we've changed address. But, verse 31, when anyone sins against his neighbor and is forced to take an oath and comes and takes an oath before your altar in this temple, verse 32, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked, bringing his way on his head, and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. I wonder if, you know, that case that he presided over with a woman, you know, that cut the baby in half. <laughs> if I can't have it, no one can have it. I wonder if that stayed with him all of it. It would have stayed with me. That would have been a traumatic experience to see a human being so foul that uh, they're willing to, to quench an innocent life just so viciously. It's it just... Uh, and here he's addressing this. He's, he's praying, he's speaking to God about justice amongst the people. And when, when justice is missing, we notice very quickly, especially if you were the ones victimized or subject to victimization. If they did it to him, they're going to do it to me. So drawing, again, themes from the book of Deuteronomy, including consequences of disobedience and this desire for justice, which runs through... Uh, till verse 50, um, 
we, we find later that the Jews, they abuse these things, which is how sinners uh, give them enough time. They leaven the lump and they abuse it. Uh, they abuse the oath and they abuse the oath before the temple. Uh, Jeremiah says, you know, you run around flaunting, you know, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, that that's going to somehow excuse your wickedness, like it's a rabbit's foot or something. Uh, Jesus comes and tells the people, you know, don't swear by the altar or don't swear by the temple and don't swear by the temple because they were just abusing these things. Righteous hearts value justice because they, they, we understand the implications of justice violated. You know, the justice, the symbol of the uh, lady justice with the blindfold and the sword. Well, unfortunately, uh, they should also show her not only as blind but dumb, according to many of the judges, not all of them. Thank God. But there are a lot of wicked judges. And it, the accountability is just non-existent. So I'm going on a rant just briefly. Uh, it's just a, a shame how some of them are just rotten, evil, wicked people with places in places of authority. And my irritation at that is because this violation of justice jeopardizes me also, my life, my family, my loved ones, my friends. Justice in the land is essential if citizens are going to prosper in peace. Citizens can prosper with wickedness, but that's, of course, not the, the goal. Then here in heaven, again, heaven uh, repeated, repeated by, by Solomon in this section. Verse 33, when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you and confess your name, and pray and make supplication to you in this temple. Verse 34, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave to their fathers. I do like and I admire how Solomon is saying, these are the, the, the our fathers. This, you are the God our fathers loved and served. And we're not going to abandon uh, this belief. We're not going to say, okay, well, I'm a grown-up now, and that was my father's religion, but I'm going to go find another religion, <clears throat> which, of course, some of them will do, and even Solomon will stumble there. But for the time being, it's admirable uh, to see this, uh, this loyalty to truth, not just because it's my, the God of my father, but because it, it, it's true. This is the truth. God desired, according to Deuteronomy and what Solomon is praying, that Israel would be invincible. But their attraction to idolatry hindered and even forfeited their invincibility. God promised military blessings if they remained loyal to him. And when they were not, they did not honor the Sabbaths, they received the judgment. And I'm sure, and we know, many of them were bitter at God for daring to be God. How dare you make, make a commandment and then hold us accountable to it? Leviticus 26, verse 7. You will chase your enemies, and they shall fall by the sword before you. This was predicated on, on their obedience. And Solomon, uh, he knew that future generations would not obey. I don't think he understood he wouldn't. Not yet. But this is a, there's a veiled prophecy in this, speaking about the captivity to come. Uh, at this point, if you had inquired of a Jew and said, "Do you what do you what is this captivity?" Probably would have shrugged the shoulders. I don't know. 
But it's going to happen because God has uh, ordained this. Verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them. Then, verse 36, hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Well, I mean, this is just a high standard. And I think of all of the sins that are that we know about, the easiest one to avoid is idolatry. And it is the worst one. Uh, and that they did, that's where they really failed. Because God put these pathways to the altar to forgive them. But the idolatry, that, that was a deal breaker. There was no forgiveness coming to the idolater. And Paul points this out in the New Testament to Jew and Gentile alike. To abandon idols. Uh, at times, the Jewish people will become too wicked to pray to Yahweh. And, at, and even times, they would pray, and God said, I'm not going to listen to them. Because their hearts are they're, they're fake. They're a bunch of hypocrites. I'm not listening to them. Uh, and Jeremiah, of course, is just one who brings it out. Isaiah, you know, these people draw near me with their mouths, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me. Teaching us doctrine, the commandments of men. What men make up becomes God's law, according to that group not according to God. So, uh, even though there's always been a remnant, a remnant usually is just very weak. It just doesn't have the strength to make a difference. And so when the judgments come from, for instance, when God shuts up the rain for three and a half years under Elijah, uh, it was the prophet, the center of the, the event. The people really were not, you know, praying for a famine to, to, to discipline the people. It was the prophet Elijah because the remnant was just very small. As, uh, but it was larger than what Elijah thought. <laughs> Elijah thought he was the remnant. And, uh, it, it, you know, you've you, you got to love Elijah. He didn't like people too much. And when he had a chance to point that out to God that he was the only one he does, okay, I'm just uh, enjoying the prophet some. He probably wouldn't have liked me either. Anyway, verse 37. Um, <clears throat> when there is famine in the land, pestilence or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, when their enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, verse 38, whatever prayer... Whatever supplication is made by anyone or by all your people, Israel, when each one knows the plague of his own heart and spreads out his hands towards this temple, verse 39, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and give to everyone according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Verse 40, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you gave to their fathers. Uh, if you're just joining us online, we're in 
1 Kings chapter 8, it was said of G. Campbell Morgan, my favorite, one of my favorites, so helpful to me. Um, Anyway, it was said that just the way he read the scripture, he taught the people. I have um, always hoped for that, admired it. I would pay you to say that I do that. (laughs) But... Reading it, you know, you just it, it becomes it comes to life. There's something to be said about drama. Drama is not all bad. It, when you get Ezekiel was the pantomime prophet. I mean, he would act out everything. I believe they were plays because some of it, like you got to set up a whole stage to carry out, dig through the wall, and you know, pack your bags and march away and come back at night. Uh, you know, he I, I believe they were plays. Uh, the, the drama brought it out. Now, of course, like anything, it gets abused. And I don't think pastors should be in the pulpit miming or, or acting out. This is the time for the word, to, to preach the word and not uh, over-dramatize it. And you can do that by fluttering the voice and, or being rolling your R's and things like that. So, uh, anyway, unless you're, I guess... You know, Scott or Welshman or so, you know, where they do roll their R's normally, but to bring it... Can you imagine going to Queens, New York and rolling your R's? Man, they'd beat you up when you left. It irritated me the whole time. You're going to pay. <laughs> anyway, uh, blight or mildew, a pair of contrasting judgments. I mean, the, the blight is the blasting, talking about those scorching winds, the siracos that belong to that part of the world. And then the mildew, in the, in the Hebrew, the greenness or yellowing from the, the, the mildew refers to that which is caused by too much moisture. So God is saying, you know, you're going to be stuck on the right or left if you start messing with me. There's no escape. Locusts are grasshoppers, uh, of course, associated with destruction, agricultural destruction. You know, a, a swarm of locusts in downtown, you know, Manhattan is not going to do much. They laugh at that. But of course, in the breadbasket, it, it could it could be devastating. So, and their land was all dependent upon the, the crops. Uh, it's interesting. The word locust in the Hebrew here is connected to the word for consume or finish off. And so God is saying, I'll finish you off, you know. And they would have gotten that in in reading this. And where he says, you know, God knows all men. Well, we know that our God does. And it is uh, goofy when you hear about people trying to assign human characteristics to God. Like, well, I hope he remembers. Uh, But uh, this interesting passage out of John's Gospel, early on in John, he he lays this out, chapter 2. When they were all, ooh, he's just doing miracles. And it says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not believe them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Now, I did an interpretive rendering in that reading because in the King James, it's usually, and other translations, but Jesus did not commit. But that Greek word, did not commit himself. The word commit is the same word, believe. Uh, pistos, and he just didn't believe him. And I just wish they'd do that. Why don't they consult me? I wait by the phone, I wait by the phone. 
They never call those translators. What does that translate into? All right, that's it for the attempted humor. It's, it's, God's already told me it's you, not me. <laughs> well, anyway, whatever influences the mind affects the mental state of the individual, the emotional state, and then the behavior. And the temple was to influence the mind. For us, the great influence is not the temple of the Lord. It is the Holy Spirit. And Christianity is different from Judaism in, in just so many ways. Uh, just to live out the life of the Christian is, is really, I think, much more difficult. I didn't, you know, wasn't so sure of that when I first heard that preached to me. And now I know. Christianity, I mean, it would be just so nice if you goof up, just take a sheep down to the temple and you're done. Now it's like, man, I'm not going to mess this up this time. Because the Lord loves me. He died for me. He's the Lamb of God, and I don't want to disappoint him. And there I go, disappoint him again, because one of you were disappointing him by getting on my nerves. <laughs> I, um, I have a philosophy that whenever girls get in trouble, it's because there's a boy around. <laughs> Boys can get in trouble all by themselves. But girls just have this thing with the influence. And you might not agree with that. That's okay. But uh, I forgot the point. There was a point in there. <laughs> Interesting phrase here in verse 38. The plague of his own heart. I, I, you know, here he's talking about, you know, the blight and the mildew, the grasshoppers, the locusts, and the plague inside of you. A contrite heart is what it overcomes. That's the antidote for this plague that we all have. This is illustrated by Christ in one of his parables. Luke 18, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knew he couldn't bring an offering. He could afford it. He was a tax collector. But he just knew this went deeper than, okay, here's my offering. I'm good now. It was the plague in his own heart. And all he could ask for was mercy. And all God could give him was mercy. And that mercy of God comes with grace. You, you can't get grace as a sinner without mercy. Uh, you, you just Because, again, mercy is withholding punishment. Grace is blessing you in spite of guilt. And it is really something that is peculiar to Christianity because of the suffering of Christ. And all Christ says, well, just how about you just show some of that to others? And, of course, you know, we do good until somebody just gets on our nerves or gets on our bad side or makes us feel insecure. And then we just feel, we just shut down. Like we forget all the great sermons and points and the notes we've written down over the years and we just get into the flesh, and many times we don't get out. We just stay there and harbor that anger and spread it, if we can, by sharing the story. Yeah, well, they did this, and I did that. And the angels just, you know, we're assigned with you, but we do wish sometimes you'd shut up. <laughs> and that's all of us. It's no, not one. Well, we'll come to that. Verse 41, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is... Not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country <clears throat> for your name's sake. Verse 42, for they will hear of your great name, speaking Yahweh's great name, that is, and your strong hand, 
and your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this temple. But it's so much there. We'll just go on and try to open up the section in a minute. Verse 43. Here in heaven, listen, in heaven, that is, he is saying, uh, your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls on you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you and do as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. Well, the Hebrew here for the foreigner in verse 41 is a word that means a foreigner who does not dwell with them. In other words, there were foreigners who moved into Israel, and they were resident aliens. They lived there, uh, they had antennas on their heads, because they were aliens. <laughs> okay. Maybe they didn't. I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, so you had the two type of foreigners. You had the one that was outside the land and had to get a passport to come into the land. And you had the ones that lived there. The Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8 is a foreigner outside the land. And he comes into Israel. He's a proselyte. proselyte He's converted to, to, to Judaism. Uh, some don't want to give him that. Some commentators, no, he was a Jew. He just lived in Ethiopia. But I don't think it, uh, that is it at all because he's, he's, he's just uh, not in touch with the Jewish writing when he says, is Isaiah talking about um, himself or somebody else? Uh, he has no opinion, which a little humor of the Jewish expense here proves he wasn't a Jew because they all have an opinion. <laughs> so... Uh, Anyway, Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. The Levites weren't supposed to be the only ones. It, it turned out that way because of the sin. And when Moses comes down the mountain and the Levites side up with Moses, man, to have people loyal to you when the pressure is on, people who are saying, well, we're not going to forget who you are because of this, that is one of the greatest feelings in the world. Well, anyway... To the be recipient of loyalty, that is. When everybody else doesn't have your back, and then there are those that, I've got your back. Oh, man, this is uh, great. But anyway, to point this out, that Israel was to be a kingdom of priests under the old covenant to the Gentile world. A light to the Gentiles. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, if any of you were doubting me before I read that, how do you feel now? All right, all right. I'm no more, no more funny stuff for you. Just You're going to get just hard preaching now. Well, again, Israel never learned to bring in the outsider. Outsider. They were to draw the unbeliever to them. Their light was to shine and it was to just attract. What makes Israel so special? I must see, like the fire that burn, burned the bush without consuming it. And Moses said, I must see this. That was supposed to be Israel. Of course, she just never learned to do it. And you see this. It was, Paul struggled with this so much. Um, <clears throat> you could not remain a Jew after the New Testament in your religion. Ethnically, of course, there's nothing you can do about that, and nor should you want to. But uh, they had to relearn their faith. 
The church, on the other hand, is not to let their light shine to draw people. That's part of it, of course. But we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're to bring the light to the dark places. And there are many of them. And I, I go to these on YouTube. Uh, you know, these places that I would just ne- did not know existed. And you, you just say, boy, even if you wanted to take the gospel there, you couldn't. It's just not going to let you in. Or others have already been there and messed it all up, some of them. What a fight. But we can bring it to that area in our life where we find ourselves. For me, in years of sharing the gospel, my work was characterized by taking, by hauling trash away. These goofy ideas people had about Christians and the Bible and Jesus Christ. And that characterized my ministry as a, as a, uh, just a common Christian before it became uh, public ministry, my private ministry as as a Christian, not being a pastor. I would just take away the rubbish. They would say something about, the, the Bible says this. And I said, what did you find? Did you ever read the Bible? Why would you even repeat that? That's not in the Bible. That's contrary to the Bible. And it was just so remarkable because it was so fruitful. Well, that to me is part of the church bringing the light to the world. And the blessings that God is giving the people was not that they might, of course, hoard and boast of the blessings, as they eventually did. They would shut the word away from the Gentile. They would boast that they were God's people, and the Gentiles were, you know, fuel for the hells of uh, fire, uh, for the fires of hell. And uh, that is, of course, not what God wanted. Verse forty-four: When your people go out to battle against their enemy, wherever you send them, and when they pray to Yahweh toward the city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for your name, verse forty-five. Then here in heaven, their prayer and their supplication. And maintain their cause. Oh man, do I want God to maintain my cause. I feel he always has. But I also feel it is always cost. I I don't know, you know, seldom is it free. There's pain of heart. There's emotions in it. Skin is in the game. uh, And it hurts to to serve God. And I think anybody who's serving public ministry, oh, it's just wonderful. I think they're lying. And they they probably sound like that. Oh, it's just wonderful. Because it does, it hurts. It's hard stuff. And just ask Paul, who said, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. How intense is that? And it wasn't one or two. He, he didn't just get shoved around once or twice. He took some heavy beatings. And the healing in process, you know, when he and Silas are going from Philippi to Thessalonica, walking down those roads, maybe hitching a ride on a cart as it's bumping down those Roman brick roads, you got to know the caning they received on their backs is still oozing out stuff and sensitive. And they get there and they preach Christ and the, Philipp- the Thessalonians are like, what is this? They beat you over there and you're still preaching? Sign us up. They became, many, they became, many of them became Christians. So, yeah, Christianity is... But, but God knows how to bind the sacrifice to the altar. He knows how to tie you to the place where you're going to be sacrificed so you can't get away. Uh, A.W. Tozer said, God is ingenious at making crosses for us. <laughs> and it's just, uh, these are facts. And I don't think anybody can, can dispute them. But what it comes down to, is it worth it? That's, what it? that's where the action is. 
Well, that's why Paul says, I, you know, I give myself. To, I, I am spent and will gladly be spent for you, Corinthians. I would have I organized a beatdown party. For the Corinth, Paul, we're sick of what those Corinthians are doing. They're not Christians. We're going to go get them. Verse 45. <laughs> then here in heaven, their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. To, be, to have God maintain the cause. Now, Israel was not to choose their own battles. And if they were being attacked, of course, it was just the reaction was standard. But as far as launching an offensive against a foreign power or kingdom, uh, they had to be led by God. And um, that is no different from us. When we are launching the gospel into enemy territory, we want to be led by God. Verse 46, when they sin against you, and there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and deliver them to the enemy, and they take them captive to the land of the enemy, far and near. Verse 47, yet when they come to themselves in the land where they are carried captive, and repent, and make supplication to you in the land of those who took them captive, saying, we have sinned and done wrong. We have committed wickedness. Now, of course, it had to be more than verbalizing this. It had to contrite heart. And here is another veiled prophecy of the captivity. Uh, displacement of, of vanquished people was common uh, for large kingdoms. You'd conquer somebody and you'd, you'd take out the ones you liked and spread them throughout, or take the cream of the crop to the palace and the others you'd spread out and displace them and the ones you really didn't thought were a threat, you'd, you'd kill them. That's they systematically relocating the people. That's how they did it. Micah, in his prophecies, Micah, around the time of Isaiah, <clears throat> I think he's a little older than Isaiah in his ministry, and they did minister at the t- same time for a period. He writes, Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion. Now pause there. Remember we said Zion grew to mean other things than just that hilltop, and, and there's an application He says, like a woman in birth pangs, for now you shall go forth from the city, you shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered, there Yahweh will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. He he leaves out that it will take over 70 years to bring that about, but uh, that's the truth. And of course, a little more than 200 years from now, uh, the... The Syrians will, will take away the northern kingdom, and then about 360 years from this point, they will begin taking them away from Judea. There were raids that were going throughout the time of the kings uh, after Solomon. Um, Naaman, you know, he was conducting raids against Israel. In fact, it was the servant girl, the little Jewish servant girl that said that introduced uh, Naaman's wife, and not in person, but by name. In fact, to Elisha the prophet. Well, uh, this statement about all are guilty before God, well, we Christians know that, but it's still, I think, a positive exercise to review it. Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say I have made my heart clean? I am pure from my sin. Well, that's that plague in your own heart, right? Ecclesiastes 7, For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. So you have those who do good, but they do sin also. 
Uh, Romans 3, <clears throat> as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Then verse 23 of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now notice the difference in that verse, all have sinned. Uh, the tenses, all sinned is past tense. And then he goes on, the, because we are, we're not only sinners by nature, but we're also sinners by practice. He goes on, fall short of the glory, that's present tense. All have sinned, that's the past. And fall, present. And it's an ongoing fight. Uh, so we fall short in ourselves of the glory of God. And yet, as God said, you know, my temple is here. There's a way back. There's a way to be cleansed. First John, if we confess our sins. Uh, pardon me, let me read it from not verse 9, but verse 8 instead. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the, the devil, he just wants to challenge one word in that. All righteousness? All of it? You sure about that? And try to leave us with enough guilt to, to harm us and others around us. Verse 48, And when they return to you with all their heart, and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who led them away captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city which you have chosen, and the temple which I have built for your name. Verse 49, Then here in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions which they have transgressed against you, and grant them compassion before those who took them captive, that they may have compassion on them, verse 51, for they are your people and your inheritance, whom you brought out of Egypt, out of the iron furnace. Well, next time someone says, well, the Old Testament's all hate and anger, well, there's grace. I don't know about that. There's flat-out grace. Always the road back to God is open. It is all that the road back to God for, for one entire lifetime is never blocked. It is never flooded. It is never, uh, it's just there for us. Uh, Jonah looked toward the temple and prayed, as I read earlier, and God forgave him. <clears throat> uh, David wanted God to be the center of their existence. And the temple was just, it was the product again of David saying, why do I live in a cedar-paneled house and the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the representation of the presence of God, is in a tent? And he wanted God to be central. And it, it happened. The reference to the iron furnace comes from Deuteronomy 4. Jeremiah picks it up too. It's metaphor for the harsh conditions in Egypt. Verse 52, that your eyes may be open to the supplication of your servant and the supplication of your people Israel to listen to them wherever they call you. Verse 53, for you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your inheritance as you spoke by your servant Moses when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Adonai Yahweh, O Lord Yahweh. Uh, there is no set time for the Jew to come and pray. He could pray any time. There were set intervals 
where public worship was to be organized, uh, and because it was in synchronization with the sacrifices, or at least some of them. Uh, but uh, not as an individual Jew, you could pray any time. Daniel prayed three times a day, which made sense. And, of course, picking up on the lead from David in his Psalms, separated the people. Well, there's your difference. The Jews versus everybody else, you could say. Jews versus the Gentile world. Christianity comes along and it says, we're going to keep this thing with the Jews being God's people because they're part of his end time plan. But for now, uh, the church, uh, they will have their assignment. And, and that's the way it is right now. There are, um, uh, uh, Israel's not going anywhere. But uh, to the millennial kingdom, that's where it's going. Verse 54. So are some of you, and I know you don't gamble because you're Christians and there's no wages taking place. But if there were, who would be betting that I'm not going to get to the end of this chapter? <clears throat> 66 verses. Um, anyway, well, minus 21. Verse 54, and so it was when Solomon had finished praying all this prayer and supplication to Yahweh that he arose from before the altar of Yahweh from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven. Then he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a, vo a loud voice saying, Blessed be Yahweh who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. There has not failed one word of all his good promise which he promised through his servant Moses. So we've got these various prayer postures. They're, you know, you can pray impaled on a cross. You can pray while you're being stoned. You can pray while you're in a fish. You can pray on your knees with your hands up. Uh, you know, you can secretly pray as Nehemiah did. These, your prayer, if, if you're falling head first, you can, you can pray falling head first. Uh, there's no restriction. Verse 57, may Yahweh our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us that he may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. Well, you got to love. I mean, it's a long prayer and the, the historian really enjoyed this prayer. And he has captured as much of it as he, he could. I like when he says Solomon prayed with a loud voice. He's bellowing this out. You get to Revelation, you're constantly hearing about the angels with a loud voice, with a thunder, you know, this loud. Um, but any, back to this section here, God, he's praying, would not forsake them, leave them or forsake them. Now, with them, it was based on their idolatry or refusal or their loyalty. What about my life when I feel like God has forsaken me and I can't put my finger on doing anything in particular that was wrong? God is doing the same thing. God blessed me and all of a sudden now I feel like he's forsaking me. When I've done all that he's asked, uh, what happens then? Well, it's not being forsaken if being abandoned by God is for God's glory. And that can go in a lot of directions. His glory can be expressed by his just developing us to be more mature, more effective Christians. 
Examples, of course, are all over the New Testament, from Christ to John the Baptist to Stephen to James the Apostle. These men were all brutally slain. They were living sacrifices. That's what happens in war. We talk about spiritual war. How much spiritual war are we talking about? I mean, troops have been sacrificed by politicians and uh, forever. Because I, politicians kill more, more troops than troops kill troops. Um, anyway, Romans 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And that's what we have to learn to do, and it hurts. doesn't mean God has always forsaken us. Actually, it can mean he's the author and finisher of our faith. Love and sacrifice are inseparable in a cursed world. Free will and sin are inseparable in a cursed world. You say, well, what if Adam and Eve couldn't, didn't sin? No, they were going to sin. There's no way the free will is going to do it. And God said, I'm going to work this thing out. I'm not going to abandon it. Verse 59. And may these worlds of mine, words of mine, pardon me, with which... I have made supplication before Yahweh, be near Yahweh our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel as each day may require, as daily prayer, verse 60, that all the people of the earth may know that Yahweh is God, there is no other. Well, the presence of God to bless was dependent upon the people's obedience And Solomon recognizes this, but he also recognized that to be obedient, the people were dependent on the presence of God. So there was this, you know, this interdependence. Not independence or dependence, but interdependence. Our ability to love God comes from God. We know that. John John says it right out. We love him because he first loved us. It's good to remember that. Verse 61 Let your heart, therefore, be loyal to Yahweh our God, to walk in his statutes and his commandments as at this day. What is the first task of a Christian and a church? It's not to make disciples. The first responsibility of an individual Christian and a church is to be disciples. That's the, you know, what do you have otherwise? If you're not lined up with Christ and working to order your life, to discipline it, what is left? Jeremiah 16, O Yahweh, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction. The Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. Well, a born-again Gentile is saying that when he comes to Christ. That... Well, not if he's come from a Christian home, he can't say that. If he's come from a non-Christian home, he can say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthless and unprofitable things. Israel was, again, supposed to be a royal priesthood. Uh, But they failed. And uh, the church is supposed to be a royal priesthood, and we fail. There is no way you can ever say the church is doing better than Israel. (laughs) We are messed up just like they are. Uh, but, but both are getting what God wants done in spite of it. Gradually, Solomon becomes more interested in politics rather than personal holiness. 
it comes with age, that, that temptation to be drawn away, to say, you know, I put so many years into this, and I haven't gotten as far as I thought. Man, I'm just going to start slacking off. That's a trap. He wanted splendor for the kingdom more than Scripture. He began to invest himself in expanding the, the kingdom's influence instead of the Scripture's influence on his own life. Well, as mentioned before, there will be two fillings of the temple. Uh, the one when the priests exited the temple after putting the ark there inside the holy of, ho- holiest place, and then uh, after Solomon finishes praying. Second Chronicles 7, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. So just as, though, as when God ignited the altar of Moses, God is igniting the altar of Solomon at the temple. Uh, the priest could not enter, it tells us, uh, also in Second Chronicles, because of the glory of the Lord. There was just no, more, no place for human activity with that much presence of God. Verse 62. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before Yahweh. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered to Yahweh 22,000 bulls and 120,000 sheep. So king, the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of Yahweh. In verse 64, on the same day, the king consecrated the middle of the court that was in front of the house of Yahweh, for there he offered burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar that was before Yahweh was too small to receive the burnt offerings, the grain offerings, and the fat of the peace offerings. Verse 65, at that Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, a great assembly from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Egypt, before Yahweh our God, seven days and seven more days, 14 days. This was just this extraordinary festival. Well, it should have been. And you got Jews coming in from, you know, Syria and all of Egypt, you know, just converging on Jerusalem. They had 11 months to plan this. And it's no surprise that they were ready. They had the animals there and they had the, the orders of the priests to take care of this. This altar of Solomon is 30 foot square. It's 15 feet high. This is as high as the ceiling in the center here. And this was an enormous altar. So they could have multiple animals being offered up uh, to to the Lord, uh, of course. And then he ordains auxiliary altars to help with the load. So uh, this this feast, this dedication of the temple, it was um, several things going on here. You had three Jewish holidays happening, well, almost three. Uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. But you had the bringing of the ark into the temple. That's one part. Then you had the dedication of the temple, including the altar. And uh, the feast, well, first it started with the Day of Atonement. In this seventh month of the Jew, the first day of that month was the Feast of Trumpets. And then uh, the ninth day of the month began the feast of uh, the Day of Atonement. They're all called feasts. We think of a meal, but that's not necessarily 
the idea. It's the celebration, uh, the, the com- commemoration. So the, the Day of Atonement, when they would reflect on their sins for a day, and then came, and, and the high priest would go into the altar and do what he did, then came the, the Feast of Booths, which was a seven-day period, seven-day feast, as was the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread, which were together. So this Feast of Booths, which alone was seven days, was commemorating their wilderness wandering when God provided for them manna from heaven and water and, and just uh, was still with the people till he brought them into the promised land. It was to celebrate also the, the autumn harvest. And as I mentioned, his altar just couldn't do it. So I, I just, you know, how do you crunch some numbers here? The rate of sacrifices of 142,000 animals, 22,000 bulls. Well, they would be, the more, of course, more time-consuming. They probably, I don't know, anyway. In 14 days, if you divide that, you come up with 10,140. 14 days into the 144,000. I did it at a rate of 12 uh, 12-hour day with as much daylight as you could get out of it, I guess. Yeah, lunchtime, union rules. And uh, it comes up to about 845 sacrifices an hour. And then, you know, then how many other, well, you say, well, how can you do that in a day? Well, you can't. You've got a 14-day period here. So now it all becomes manageable. So uh, just to review... This is September, October, Feast of Trumpets, no big celebration going on there. The Day of Atonement, a few days before this festivities begin. He dedicates the temple, dedicates the altar. They celebrate these feasts at the same time. I think I've covered everything. Raise your hand if you'd like me to repeat all that. <laughs> so, we now come to verse 66. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the eighth day, he sent the people away, and they blessed the king and went to their tents, joyful and glad of heart for all the good that Yahweh had done for his servant David and for Israel, his people. And so the spirit of abundance uh, was, is just obvious right now. This was a good time to be an Israelite. And it was a new and fresh beginning for the nation with, uh, concerning their worship. Let's, let's pray. Now, Father, I thank you. A lot of material there. And we know that there's more meaning to these things about you, your Son, and your Holy Spirit than we could ever capture. But there's still enough to make us better at what we're supposed to do. May it get us all home safely tonight, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.